0: Please be seated. We're at question number 36 still, as we have been uh, for some time. We're looking at the very various um, extra benefits, I guess you should say that could, could say, that we have. So today, as we're continuing to, to do that, to look at these benefits, I thought it would be helpful for us maybe to review... All of the benefits, thus, that that we've looked at. And so let's do that beginning with question 32, the question that introduces us to the idea of benefits that we have from uh, the redemption. So question 32, let's confess these, the answers to these together. Question 32, what benefits do they that are factually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Question 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And then the question that we're on now, question 36, what are the benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. So thus far, we have looked at three, the first three of these five benefits that accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. Today, we're going to look at the fourth one, which is increase of grace. For our scripture reading associated with this, I've chosen a reading from John's Gospel, chapter 1, the first 18 verses of John, chapter 1. So please give me your attention as I read to you from the Word of God, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received And grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. There we'll end. Reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Now, I don't have any intention, of course, of expounding all the verses that we, we just read this afternoon. But did you notice in particular what it says about grace? Our subject is increase of grace. We meet the word grace in in first in verse 14, where we're told that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. We're told that we, the church, saw the glory of this one who is the only begotten son of God when he became flesh And what and what was the glory that we saw? It was that he was full of grace and truth. That's the glory that was seen in him. It's the thing that stood out about him from others. And the marvelous thing about this grace that he was so full of is that we who are redeemed have received it and keep on receiving it from him. That's what it says in verse 16. And of his fullness, we have all received. And what was the fullness? Grace and truth. Of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. This grace that Jesus brought, he keeps on dispensing to us as his people. So this is where I want to begin, that our God marvelously gives grace to those that he redeems. John tells us here that Christ lavishes it upon us. That he being full of grace, verse 14, and we receiving of his fullness, verse 16. These words that are used here, grace for grace, they speak of what the catechism refers to as increase of grace. They could be translated grace after grace or grace upon grace. The picture you should get here is of a mighty flowing river of grace. That ever flows and the water comes over and over and over itself coming and coming and coming and coming. It keeps on keeps on coming to you. It's a deluge of grace. Great one grace after another. It's lavished on us. It just keeps on coming. John explains in verse 17 that Moses gave us the law. The law told us what was required of us as God's people. It gave us the moral law and it also gave us the ceremonial law that showed the atonement that we needed because we were sinners. So there were like the moral part, the Ten Commandments of how we always ought to have lived and served. But then there was the ceremonial part that showed us how we needed God's washing and cleansing and atonement, atoning sacrifices, and so on. So the law, as clear as it was, Did not, however, provide these things. It just told us what we needed, not only as people, but as sinners. It didn't provide what we need to be God's people. No, the law was given by Moses, it says, but this is a great contrast. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And if we are his, we have received his fullness. When the Son came into the world and went to the cross, He brought this grace to us. It was like a great f- food drop, you know, where you, you have hungry people and they have a food drop and the food comes down and everybody goes to to get something to eat. But He didn't just leave it in a big pile somewhere. By effectual calling, He distributes this grace to us when He calls us individually to come to Him. This grace is brought into the world by him, and then it is brought to each one of God's elect individually, grace upon grace, grace after grace, on and on and on, bringing the blessing. But just what is this grace that is brought to us? Well, grace is God's free provision of all that we need to be his people, all that we need to be a people who please him. We who are sinners are given all that we need to live happily with God forever. This grace is a combination of God's favor and of God's help. Take Noah. God was going to judge the whole world by the flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That is, he found favor. Noah found forgiveness. And that's not all. He found favor and then God provided His salvation. We are saved by grace. God provides grace to save us. Jesus brings to us everything that we who are cut off by sin need to please God. He gives us forgiveness and he gives us new life. He does it all. The law told us what we needed with shadows. Jesus brought us what we needed in reality and truth and he gives it to us as his people. Grace is completely undeserved. In Romans eleven six, Paul explains that if our salvation is by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, that grace is no longer grace. If we work for it, then it's something that we have earned. The whole point is that grace is that of, of grace is that God brought what is required through His Son. It's not that we deserve it, and it's not what we do, but it's what he does to save us. Of course it is, and it must be. You could not provide a sacrifice for your sins. Only Jesus could do that. You could not change your sinful heart. Only Jesus can do that. You could not make yourself attain to God's high calling. Only Jesus can do that. And I suppose it goes without saying that grace is desperately needed. We can't possibly please God without his grace. So grace is Jesus freely bringing us everything that we need to please God. And if you are one of God's elect people, this grace is freely given to you, not just at the beginning, but all your life long. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, like the river, We can identify four stages in which grace flows to the elect. There is first common grace, which enables all people to live upon the earth since the fall. It's only because of grace that death is postponed and that God told Adam and Eve or, or told Eve that through sorrow, she would bring forth children. Now, you see, the sorrow was added, but she was still able to bring forth children. God could have easily taken that away. And Adam was told that though with many difficulties by the sweat of his brow, that he would bring forth food of the earth to feed him and his his family that was needed for survival. If Christ had not been coming, God might have wiped Adam and Eve out right then and there. But because of his purpose of grace in Christ, then he sustained the earth and us upon it until the church is filled." So the whole population is sustained for the sake of Christ and his church. And that's what we call common grace. But God's grace comes even more in the next stage. Second, God's grace comes to us in our effectual calling. Now, I hope you remember what that is. We looked at that in the past. It is the work of God's spirit by which he shows us our sin, convincing us of our sin and misery. And he makes us willing then to come to him for salvation, showing us that Christ is the adequate provision. This is the grace that works in us so that we will come to him in faith. Je- you won't even do that without grace. Jesus is the one who brought the spirit to all people so that even though they were dead in sin, they might repent and believe the gospel. If you are elect, this grace of effectual calling was at work in you through your life, preparing you for the day of your conversion and then even more grace comes to us in the third stage at our conversion when we actually repent and believe as soon as we embrace jesus christ with believing faith we are immediately forgiven immediately completely justified by his righteousness christ's righteousness which is imputed to us And immediately we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who gives us new life. We are forgiven by grace. Now, the Spirit was already working in us, but we're now made alive by Christ. And that life begins to be lived out by the grace of God. But the Lord does not leave us with whatever grace we have at conversion. And that's what I was just really segueing into that that he gives us life, and then that life is lived out. In the fourth stage, he continues to give us more and more grace, grace upon grace, like an ever-flowing river to supply us with what we need to please God. For this reason, almost all the epistles that are written to those who believe, written to God's people, begin with such words as, grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes at the end, they say, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. So if you're in Christ, grace is continuing to come to you. As James puts it very simply in chapter four, he gives more grace, more and more and more. And that brings us to our next point. Okay, you have this uh, this thing of grace upon grace upon grace Well, you need fresh and constant supplies of grace to go on for God. You need grace to grow. Now, is your life stagnant? You see, you need grace. Your life in Jesus Christ is a living thing, and it ought not to be stagnant. Living things are growing things, and we grow by grace. Jesus pours out his grace on us, and we grow. What are some of the ways that you need to grow in grace? Well, you need to grow in knowing God. Jesus said that eternal life is to know the Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Do you know God as well as you ought? Who would say, oh, yes, I know God perfectly as I ought. Do you know his love? Do you know his wisdom? Do you know his power? Do you know his mercy, his justice, his holiness? Do you know his wrath, his judgment? Do you delight in his glorious ways? in who he is, in your relationship that you have with him by his grace. Well, I have good news for you if you don't know him as well as you should, that you are not on your own in your quest to know God. God's grace is working in you to help you grow in your relationship with God. So Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians one seventeen. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Isn't that a tremendous promise? You want to know God. God gives grace so that you may know God. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Second, you need grace to grow in the fruit of the spirit. Do you love God and your brothers and sisters in Christ as you ought? Do you have the fullness of joy in the Holy Spirit that we talked about recently that you ought to have? That Do you have all the patience that you need? What about holiness and obedience? What about gentleness? I heard a very good uh, devotional done not long ago about gentleness and how it's a fruit of the Spirit. Who, who thinks about gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit? Do you have that? It's a fruit of the Spirit, too. The good news is that you can look to God's grace to work in you to bring these things into your life, to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. When Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, his whole point is that this fruit does not come by our works, but by grace through faith. A tree doesn't sit there and go, Ur, I've got to grow fruit, but the fruit grows out on its branches when it is nourished and supplied. So it is with us, he says in Galatians three, three before the chapter five, where he talks about he kind of introduces that whole section in chapter three. And he says to the Galatians, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? So you said, okay, I need to be saved. I can see that. I, I, I'm a sinner. I need to be redeemed. And only Jesus can do that. I trust in the, him and what he did. So I come to Jesus and I believe. And now I'm going to work. I'm going to work. No, you, you feed on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may grow. Third, you need to grow in your service and usefulness to others. Don't you want to be more useful as a Christian? Don't you want to be more devoted to doing for others? Of course you do. If you're a Christian, you want to be a blessing to your family. You want to be a blessing to other Christians, to do good concerning them. And sometimes we're not very good at doing good. You, have, you want to have your part in advancing the kingdom and evangelism, reaching out to other people and leading them in the ways of God. Well, let me tell you what a man who served more than anyone else had to say about service first Corinthians 15 10 but by the grace of God he said I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all yet not I but the grace of God which was in me so if we ask an expert he will tell you that it is by grace that you're able to serve you see that you're not given grace to be saved and then left on your own to grow. No, you're given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, grace after grace, that you might grow in knowledge, in the fruit of the Spirit, and in service to others. And of course, I could have had 10 categories there or I could have had two. You know, those, those are three things to think about. You also need to grow, you also need grace to face the daily challenges of living for Christ, grace for each trial that comes along. There is grace that you need to stand in the day of temptation. Ephesians 6 speaks about the evil day that comes when the devil and the rulers of darkness of this age come against us with all of their craftiness and all of their deceit, and they just load you with temptation we see how the Lord Jesus even had periods when he had severe temptation it's a day when you feel the pull of sin when it is a great struggle to do the will of God you all have times like that when you lose your focus when you want to complain or when you want to unleash your anger or when you want to give way to your sins and lusts that, that teem in you you know about those days there is grace for such days. You're instructed to be strong in the Lord. This is from Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, shortly, we're going to talk about how we, we tap into this grace, how we obtain this grace. But now I'm just telling you, how you ways that you need it. OK, so uh, this grace then is to keep you is given to you to keep you from temptation. And then there is grace also to enable you to escape temptation. When you have actually fallen into given into temptation, when you have yielded to temptation, you're in a grip of sin. When it has you and is dragging you down, dragging you away from the Lord. There is grace from God to escape 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation, now listen carefully, has overtaken you. So you're not just tempted now, you have actually given way to the temptation. It has overtaken you. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You can never say that you can't escape from your sin as a Christian. Whatever it is, God has grace to deliver you. Thirdly, there is grace to sustain you when you are weary. Sometimes it's hard to keep going on. I spoke to a man a number of years ago man that I had been close to many years before that, that we would meet together and, uh, and talk and we would kind of keep each other accountable and so on. And it was before I went to, to seminary. And then uh, a few years uh, after, I, after I finished seminary, I, I hadn't been in touch with him very much. And uh, I found out that, that he had, uh, was giving up on his marriage. He didn't have any legitimate grounds for divorce. When I met with him, he said it was just too hard, and he didn't want to spend the rest of his life slugging it out with his wife, but was going to enjoy an affair. He had already gotten into an affair, and he was going to continue in that pathway. He was weary, weary in serving God. I have talked to many a minister who felt like throwing in the towel, Times were very difficult. Things were not going well. It was hard. And they want to quit. They want to leave their calling and go to something easier. They're weary and worn like Moses in the wilderness. You imagine Moses having to spend all that time with the people that were always complaining, always resisting, and he had to keep on going. And he never even got into the promised land for 40 years now, I remember in talking to this man that about his marriage, I brought up Moses and he basically said something like, I'm not Moses. But you see, that's not the point. There's grace for us. There's grace for us as Christians. And it's very enriching for us when we are weary and we receive the grace of God that enables us to go on. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul explained how he himself had been brought to the breaking point and how God had delivered him. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Do not think that grace is not there for you. The Lord often puts us in situations that are beyond our strength so that we might learn to rely on his grace. And this grace is not just for great apostles like Paul. It is for you when you are weary in shepherding your children or of shoveling snow, or of washing dishes, or of doing your homework. It can be in the mundane things. It can be in the grand things. God has grace for the weary so that we can do our work with joy in service to him. All is done, even the mundane things, to his glory. And it takes on rich meaning when you, maybe you're A mother with children, multiple children in diapers. And you you get weary of changing those diapers. Well, do that to the glory of God. There is also grace for settling quarrels. James talks about this grace in chapter 4 of his epistle. Maybe you have a quarrel with someone. Well, in short, he explains that wars and fights among us come from having our own agenda. He says our desires, our lusts. Something that we want and that we don't get from the other person and, and uh, we refuse to let go of it. When we have things we want like a, maybe we want our spouse to treat us in a certain way. You know, well, when I'm tired like this, you should do this. You should treat me like this. And then we resent it because they're not doing it the way we want. Maybe we even feel completely legitimate in whatever it is that we're loading on that, you know, they ought to be doing this or that. We demand this instead of looking to please God. So our shift our focus is shifted. James calls this spiritual adultery. Because you're no longer serving God, you're serving your own lusts. I want you, whoever it is, to be like this toward me. And you're not. So therefore, I've got issues with you. James says it's spiritual adultery, but then what does he say after that? That's when he says God gives more grace. I quoted it before out of context. Indeed, God does give more grace. He gives grace to turn from your pride and the, thing, and the things that you want and that you think are the most important and to become humble and realize that you're here for the glory of God. And then you, at least on your part, can stop contributing to the quarrel. There is also grace to help you to honor God in persecution. Persecution. The greatest comfort when you see persecution coming is not that God is able to prevent it and or that he might prevent it. The great comfort is that he will pour grace on you so that you can glorify him in the way that you respond to that persecution. Don't say, oh, I hope this persecution goes away. But say, I hope I can honor God in this persecution, because that's what he especially promises. So you can be patient so that you can love your enemies so that you can keep on for God. The prayer of Acts 4:29 is just how it should be, the prayer of the persecuted church. It was not, "Stop this persecution, Lord." But rather, they said, "Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word." And the outcome was that of verse 31. The place where they were assembled together after they prayed that prayer was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There was more grace for them and the grace was abundant. See, we want the grace to say, make the persecution go away. The grace that God gives is the grace to sustain us to honor him in that persecution. There is grace also for you when you are sick, in a very similar way. The Apostle Paul had what he calls a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed that it might be removed. Since it's in his flesh, we assume that he's talking about something bodily. But instead, the Lord told him that he had grace for him to bear it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, Paul says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So it's okay to ask that God take it away. We saw that with Jesus. He prayed, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, then he says, verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. I'll I'll keep on having the infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm not going to just keep fighting against having the infirmity, in other words. But I'm going to look to the grace of God that is sufficient for me to honor him with that infirmity. So the grace of God is, in fact, such a wonderful thing to receive that Paul goes on to say in verse 10. This is a remarkable statement. Okay, He's got some kind of bodily issue. He says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak. Then I am strong. Why? Because the grace of God that is so powerful is at work in him. It's so effective that you can actually be excited about seeing trouble come that it will not weaken you, but that through the working of God, it will make you stronger than ever. God has grace for you, Christian. Do not despair. His grace is always sufficient. It's not so much to stop the hard things, but to help you please God when they come. And then seven, indeed, there is even grace for facing death when death approaches. Psalm 23 reminds you, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And at the very end of that psalm, it says that his grace pursues us that the mercy of God follows us all the days of our life. So you see that you have what you have to look forward to all your life long. There will be grace for you all the way. Grace to help you grow. Grace to help you thrive in the struggles of life. Grace begins to flow from us, even in our mother's womb, if we are God's elect. And it keeps on coming all through our lives There is more and more grace. There is a constant increase of grace. It increases because there's more of it that keeps coming to you. Okay, well, how does God bring it to you? I told you that we would get to that. I was telling you how you need it, but I didn't tell you how do you you obtain this grace. Well, we saw in John 1 that Jesus brought grace to us when he came in the flesh. But we have seen that he also brings it to us individually in our need. Of his fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. So how does he bring it to us in the individual ways that I have described to you that it is needed? Well, first of all, understand that he gives it to us freely. He lavishes it upon us even when we have not sought it or asked for it. Romans ten twenty. Paul speaks about the calling of the Gentiles in this way. He says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. I mentioned before that if we are elect, even from childhood, the Lord is often beginning his work in us to draw us to himself. Jesus makes it clear that nobody comes to the father unless he is drawn, unless the father draws him. So you covenant children, who have served the Lord for as long as you can remember, need to know that the reason that you have been able to serve him is on account of his grace. That grace reached you. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is true of all who believe in Jesus. Now, someone will object here and say, But I was one who did seek God. I cried out to him and I prayed for him to reveal himself to save me. I cried long and hard. And for a long time, he did not answer me. Does the scripture not speak of those who cry out to God like Psalm 88 and they don't seem to have the supply and the answer that they're looking for? And of course, the scriptures do speak of such persons. And of course, it is the experience of many that they cry to God night and day and they are not heard. But do you know that it was the grace of God that came to you to bring you about to make those cries to God in the first place? That's the grace of God. It is he by the spirit who stirred up those cries and tears so that Jesus says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You never would have sought God and cried out to him. And sometimes for the deepening of our faith and the strengthening of our true dependence upon him, he has us cry out long in our prayers before he is pleased to answer them. But that's not the end of the story of how grace comes to us. Okay? I said that it comes freely. God brings it to us when we aren't even looking for it sometimes. But it's not the end of the story. There is a dynamic interaction of how, uh, with God in receiving his grace. The normal way that God operates before giving us his grace in the, in, in the fullest extent is to stir us up to seek his grace. That stirring up, as I just said, is grace also, but it's kind of what we might call preliminary grace, There is this principle, though, that we must be humble. And again, God, by his grace, makes us humble to receive more grace from God. The Bible plainly says, and this is a true principle, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6 says that, and 1 Peter 5, 5 says that. Now, let me remind you why God does not give grace to a proud person. A proud person is one who supposes that he and his own desires are more important than God and God's will. Such a person may pray to God, but God will not hear him because he prays to advance his own purpose instead of the glory of God. What would happen if God answered the prayers of a person like that? That person would become more and more proud, more and more displeasing to God. So God resists such a person. That's what it says. He resists the proud. But you see, a humble person is one who realizes that his very problem is his own sinful desires and ways. So instead of bringing his sinful desires before God, he realizes that he needs grace to please God and he needs forgiveness and he needs daily help to desire to do what God wants and then to do it. This is a person who is longing not just for answered prayers of whatever kind, But for what we have defined here is grace. He does not merely want to be spared from trouble, but he wants grace to honor God, whether there is trouble or not. God gives grace to that kind of person. So you see that humility is foundational to foundational grace. It is a grace itself to receiving additional grace, more grace. Once you have come to Christ, you have an underlying humility about you, but you can also become proud at times, either by making your own desires, number one, I'm sure you've all slipped into that, or by forgetting that you need God's help. Whenever that happens, God in fatherly love will resist you. He resists the proud until you repent, and then he will give you his grace. Of course, in actuality, the resisting of you is, in, in this case, is a gracious act of God to bring you to repentance. But from your perspective, it is not grace until you humble yourself. So you see that God brings his grace to us first by making us humble. That is one part of the dynamic of how he does it. But there's a second part of the dynamic that we must consider that's very important. Secondly, God delivers his grace or brings his grace to us through what we call the means of grace. That's why they're called means of grace. They're ways that grace comes to us. The means of grace are the ordinances that he has given and appointed for us. Things that he has given us to do in order that we might receive grace. We will study these means of grace in a lot more detail later in the catechism from question 88 through 107 in fact there's a whole huge section on the means of grace all the way from question 88 to the end of the catechism but today we'll look at them briefly the first means of grace is his word he uses his word to bring grace to us in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 Paul speaks about how useful God's word is to us in helping us to please God. 316, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. It tells us about God, one of the things that we need to grow in, right? And uh, what God has done. For reproof, it shows us what's wrong with us. We need that. For correction, it shows us how we need to live instead of the wrong way that we're living. For instruction in righteousness, it instructs us in how to go about a whole righteous life. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means that it gives, the, it gives the church everything that we need to know in order to please God. So you see from the scriptures do that. So you see from this that the scriptures are a means of grace An ordinance that God uses to bring grace to his people. When you come humbly to God's word, not as a mere ritual. Oh, I read the Bible. People say, yeah, but were you coming to that as a means of grace, looking to receive blessing from God through it? When you come humbly to God's word, not as a mere ritual, but by looking to him to show you how you may please him to receive strength from him, you will find grace. Grace to help you. The word comes to us in various ways that God has appointed. The primary means that he uses is preaching. This is stressed throughout the New Testament over and over again. He also uses both public and private reading of the word, singing of the word, discussing the word with each other, meditating on the word. All of those are ways that we use the word as a means of grace. Now, besides the word, The sacraments are a primary means of grace. In baptism, the Lord shows us plainly that he is the one who washes away our sins through the work of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. We need to be refreshed in the remembrance of our baptism. Peter speaks of baptism as not that removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Being cleansed by Jesus, we know that we are able to serve him. And it refreshes us to remember the debt that we have that I talked about earlier. All our life long, we are to improve our baptism, to recognize that we have been put into God's hands, to be washed, into Christ's hands, to be washed, so that we look to Him in faith to do by His Spirit what is represented in baptism. John the baptizer, I baptize you with water. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. That's what's represented. And at the Lord's Supper, it is especially a testimony of the increase of grace in our lives, the very thing that we're talking about here. Through the symbolic elements of bread and wine, Christ presents himself crucified to us for our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. That's why we eat. It's a symbol of receiving the grace of God. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that we come to feed upon Christ He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? When we partake of the outward elements, we look for true communion with Jesus crucified to strengthen us. Grace, we look for grace to strengthen us. And then there is a third primary means of grace, prayer. To put it quite simply, the scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2.32, Acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13 all say that, those words. That's what Christians do. We see our need and we pray. We see our need of God's grace and we ask for it. We ask and it is given. We seek and we find. We knock and And it's open to us. Many times God makes us wait for answer to our prayers, even prayers that are rightly prayed for things that are agreeable to his will. He does this in order that we might know that it is by his grace that we are saved. But truly it is his delight to answer our prayers. He gives us many commands, invitations, promises and examples to encourage us to pray. If grace is important to us, we will pray. How can we not pray? So you see that God has us interact with him to receive his grace. We don't just sit like a log, but we are to these two ways. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, seeing that we need grace in the first place. And then we're to tap in by the use of the means of grace. And what does that mean then for you? It means that you ought to humble yourself, acknowledge your need, and, and then after that, make diligent use of these means. He has an inexhaustible supply of grace for you in Jesus Christ when you come to him. There's a whole lot more grace for you to obtain than you have yet obtained, dear believer. Do you realize that? There's not enough humility there if you don't realize that. Grace is like a beautiful river that flows into your life with more and more grace until you're bursting with joy and love for God. Don't act as if you got all the grace that you would ever get at conversion. That's very foolish. Don't try to live in the wilderness of this world without the streams of living water. You will dry up in the wasteland of your own flesh. There is a river that makes glad the city of God. Draw from the wells of salvation and drink and drink some more. Drink deeply and be filled. Keep drinking all through your life. Drink and thirst no more. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's what we're told about in John 1. Grace for grace. Let's ask the Lord then to enable us to receive what he has for us. Please stand. Lord, you have made a bountiful provision for us as your people. We pray that we would receive of that bounty, that grace that you have promised to us. For Lord, we know that we need the grace that you give. It is not given to us, is not uh, promised to us as something that we really don't particularly need, but we might use it every once in a while. We pray, O Lord, that we would have an earnestness about us. You know, perhaps there are temptations that are very strong in our lives. Perhaps there are relationships where we're really not doing the right thing. And we know that perhaps our relationship with you is desert dry. And we have come to have our affection on the things of the world and not on the things of Christ and his kingdom. Maybe there is no evangelism in us that we're desiring to spread the word to those who do not know you or to minister to people that are in the church that have needs. Father, there are so many things that, can, that are wrong with us, and I pray that we would humble ourselves, and then that we would apply to you through the means of grace, that we would bring diligent prayer, that we would search the scriptures, and that we would make diligent use of the sacraments. For you have provided these things that we may receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has provided this for us. Indeed, our two services today have been very much related to each other. We know that in the epistles that very often it is not only that they say peace to you, but grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we come to you today, it is with that desire that we would receive from your hand grace and shalom, that these things together, that we might honor you and serve you as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our psalm of response is of the Lord. Receive the grace of the Lord. The grace